But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Having this spit screen, I can <coughs> safely remove my mask. Um, Jesus doesn't speak in non sequiturs. Sometimes, though, it doesn't appear at first glance that he has answered the question that's been put to him. But that lies only on the surface. A little bit of uh, deeper examination reveals that he always answers the question that is put to him. So the question the disciples ask is, Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Which is actually a political question. All along, the prevailing idea of the Messiah among the Jews would be, was that he would throw off these Roman overlords and establish this paradisical nation-state called the kingdom of God that would be much like when uh, Israel was under King David, only even better. That was what they had in mind, and that's what Jesus is constantly having to sort of like reroute their expectations on, right? When he feeds the 5,000 and they like say, we should make him our king. <laughs> you know, they're trying to make you king. It's like, no, 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 not like that. This is not a political revolution. When Peter is excited that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, and Jesus prophesies his death, and Peter says, no, 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 you can't die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? He's constantly rerouting them away from this political expectation of their Messiah. But now that Jesus has, has died and has been raised again, the disciples sort of one last time think that maybe that, that, what, that is the plan. Jesus just had to die and be raised first. And now that he's been raised... Now we can have kind of the political kingdom we've all been waiting for. Now that Jesus is uh, even more powerful. But once again, Jesus uh, reroutes this expectations, this expectation. So the disciples ask Jesus, in effect, okay, Lord, now that you've got this resurrection power, now are you going to replace these wicked structures of society and give us the political kingdom we've been looking for? And Jesus replies, no. You will receive power, not to replace, but to transform society by bearing witness to me. So do you see how he totally turned that around 180? They said, the disciples said, um, they're looking for him to do something external. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's going to be you who will receive the power. And it will actually not be an external work in its operation. The power of the resurrection isn't to marshal a godly military. And here I'm not talking about a nation marshaling a military. I mean that the church doesn't run a military, right? The church doesn't overthrow other nation states to establish itself. The church operates in the midst of other nation states, actually transcending them, right? Not, the, church, the kingdom of God is not um, affected by sort of uh, a religiousified military. It's it's established actually on the testimony of miracles, supernatural things that go beyond the human order. Jesus says it's, his resurrection is not to then call forth soldiers, but to equip saints. It's not going to be political tactics that change things, but prayer and faithful witness. So this is how Israel, and I don't just mean Jewish people, right? I mean Israel, the, the people of God, will be established as a true nation. We really are a nation, but we don't, it didn't displace the Roman Empire. It operated above and over it in its midst. 
And this is made possible by the Holy Spirit. So the, you see, the, the disciples ask this political question, and Jesus has this answer. He's not just sort of then saying, no, no, scrap that. Let me give you some theological instruction. He's saying the theology I'm about to tell you is the answer to the thing you're looking for. By the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, who could only be sent down if Jesus ascended, right? That's what he foretold in John's Gospel. Unless I go, the, the Spirit cannot come to you. It's the same Holy Spirit who we see from time to time in the Old Testament, inspired the prophets to speak the words of God. The Holy Spirit who, until Pentecost, which we'll celebrate next week, only ever operated sporadically on the people of God and then only on a few. That same Holy Spirit would come and fill the apostles permanently, taking up residence in their souls and empowering their life, their thoughts, their actions, at both conscious and subconscious levels. And it's the same Holy Spirit that we now receive by baptism. So the apostles were baptized in a very unique way from on high. Jesus, we just heard that uh, uh, the baptism of the Spirit is coming. The apostles were baptized, remember, but then the apostles themselves went out and baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we receive at the hands of the successors to the apostles baptism in which we are given that same spirit that the apostles received. Um, there's a wonderful mysterious logic, which I, I admit I haven't gotten to the bottom of. I think it's just want to suggest for your contemplation. What's the connection in terms of Jesus needing to go away visibly in order for the Spirit to come? I mean, I, we believe it as fact because Jesus said it's so. But I think there's something wonderful in trying to think through, like, well, what's the why? What's the, the deep logic in that? One of the things that I, impre is impressed on my mind is that in the person of Jesus, he made human nature for the first time ever capable of being a vessel of the divine life, of the Holy Spirit. Right? Until then, it would be like, almost like, the image that came to mind was that like human nature after the fall is like this lump of clay. And if you tried to pour water on it, it would just run off. But in, when Jesus took on human nature, he shaped that clay into a vessel. That when we, as we draw near to him and, receive, and are united to him, now we can actually contain the Holy Spirit. But that wasn't possible until Jesus came. And the Holy Spirit that fills us, that filled the apostles, is described in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 as, um, as power. As, as bringing power with him. So I was, I got another analogy, hopefully better than the clay one, um, which is, but maybe not. <laughs> I think there's actually some analogy in electricity that right, God made nature, and he he actually has hidden within the visible natural world things that communicate truths about himself, right? The reason he gave us earthly fathers, that he set up families to have a biology where you have a, a father, is so that we would have some concept that God is Father. Right? And, and that's true all the way down the line in nature. And I think electricity shows us something about the power of God. Okay, so here's the analogy. I think human beings are like individual strings of Christmas lights. They were all wrapped up around the tree of the world, but it turns out we are disconnected from each other, and the whole tree is a few feet short of the outlet. Have you ever had, I mean, we've all had various kinds of Christmas tree light problems, but just imagine all these trees, lights right out of the tree, and, and the tree can't move, and you, you're not going to be able to get to the outlet. So you've got all these lights on the tree that are dead, right? They're not doing what they're made to do. They're just dead green strings on the branches. Christmas lights that are not plugged in are useless. And the, nothing that the lights themselves could do could get themselves to the outlet, but then 
Christ comes into the world plugged in from the very beginning, right? Because he is, all, he is God and from God, he enters the world already lit up, right? He, his life was the light of men. He comes in the world illuminated with God's own power and presence. Beautiful and bright, the first operative Christmas string light since the fall. And when Jesus ascended, it's like the Christ string gets from, goes, that's connected to the outlet, that's just an individual string, then all of a sudden get, is able to be plugged into the Christmas tree, and individual lights are then lit up with his power, but it's the same Holy Spirit that lives eternally in Christ, is channeled through Christ, he says he will send the Spirit into our lives, right? We're like the dead strings, we connect to Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit comes through Christ, through his death and resurrection and ascension, to us. And then, wonderful, wonderfully, and that's what happened with the apostles. Then those who received the apostles' testimony, those apostles who themselves were then lit up with the Spirit of God, um, themselves get plugged into their string, right? And electricity moves through Christ, through the apostles, through into the church. And so then, uh, as God has gathered the elect to himself, all of the strings then that are called to him get plugged in and we all participate in the same spirit simultaneously channeled through the church that's come before we build our lives are built on the communion of saints but all going back to the christ string right that's connecting the power outlet to the tree um maybe it's just because my wife carrie loves christmas so much that this is the analogy um, that came to mind but i think it works as a way of getting our heads around how this works as the Bible says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. By that power, the apostles evangelized the whole known world. That others might come into the same power of knowing God, being reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, and by experiencing a relationship with that living, triune God. And boy, did the apostles need that divine power. Remember that the Greek word for witness is martyreo, from where we get the word martyr. The, the originally, the word martyr was just, that word was applied to those who died because they bore ultimate witness to this truth. That a truth that you're willing to die for is something you're really convinced by, right? And we know from later church history that almost all of the apostles would witness not just with words, but with their deaths, as true witnesses, as martyrs for the truth. The truth that there really is the forgiveness of sins, the truth that there really is a Holy Spirit, the, the power of God coursing through uh, human life, thanks to Jesus. And their witness to Christ risen and ascended remains the bedrock of the church today. Right? Their spirit-inspired missionary work and martyrdom is the foundation stone. Remember in, when John gets the vision of Revelation, the names of the 12 apostles are written on the foundations of the New Jerusalem. Their faithfulness is partly by the, to God's glory, but their faithfulness is why the church exists, why we are able to receive the gospel of God. So thanks be to God for empowering his apostles and also for empowering us with that same Holy Spirit. May our witness be faithful like theirs. In this Pentecost season, which we're going to unpack more next Sunday and uh, for all the Sundays after, which are called all the Sundays after Pentecost, we hold up what God did amidst the apostolic band, um, not just as something which we're grateful for for ourselves, but as something that we can live into as well, that it's only our 
our coldness of heart that keeps us from living in to apostolic joy and zeal in the Spirit. Amen.